with that great song of nine to five. I'm not sure what time it is for everybody, but for where I am, it's it's close to seven. So we're going to uh, start. I uh, want to welcome um, everyone to Big Tent. Um, for those on the Zoom who are new to Big Tent, we are a national grassroots advocacy group organization that promotes a moderate political platform focusing on rights of all Americans, civic engagement, and good governance at both the state and federal level. Founded by a group of women in 2019, Big Tent breaks through the political noise and provides information, concrete action items, and innovative activism opportunities for members to make a positive difference in their communities and their country. We are an inclusive coalition of women who value decency, truthful and ethical leadership, and above all else, strong democratic institutions. Tonight, we are thrilled to welcome two extraordinary women under the tent. Both are fighting for democracy and the role women can play in its survival. This special spotlight series features a conversation with a Washington Post columnist, Jennifer Rubin, and Debbie Walsh, director of the Center for American Women in Politics. A few words on both speakers. Jennifer Rubin writes reported opinion for the Washington Post, as we probably all, many of us know and read and love her work. She covers politics and policy, foreign and domestic, and provides insight on the Republican and Democratic parties. Prior to her career in journalism, Jennifer practiced labor law for two decades. She is the author of Resistance, How Women Saved Democracy from Donald Trump. The book aims to be women's history of the Trump presidency, conveying how women were, quote, the foot soldiers, the organizers, the candidates, and the volunteers, pulling their country back from the clutches of a racist, anti-democratic president and his enablers. We will put a link in the chat to purchase the book for those of you who are not able to get it from us. Debbie Walsh is director of the Center for American Women and Politics, a unit of the Eagleton Institute of Politics at Rutgers University. Center for Women and Politics is nationally recognized as the leading source of scholarly research and current data about American women political participation. Its mission is to promote greater knowledge and understanding about women's participation in politics, government, and to enhance women's influence and leadership in public life. I want to thank Ada and her daughter Lexi Schmertz for introducing us to Debbie. I speak on behalf of all of us at Big Tent USA. Thank you both for all you do to protect our democracy. I will pass on the spotlight to Debbie, who will begin the conversation. Susan, thank you so much. And thank you to everyone at Big Tent USA. Um, and I'm glad you had that shout out to Lexi and Ida. Ida Schmertz was actually the co-founding director of the Center for American Women and Politics 50 years ago. So it's particularly special to me that the connection to Big Tent USA is ultimately through Ida. So thank you. Um, Jennifer, I am thrilled to be here with you this evening and to have an opportunity to have a conversation about your book, Resistance. The book is an extraordinarily comprehensive overview of the explosion of the political engagement of women in response to the election of Donald Trump. And I'm grateful to you for writing it. I'm grateful that someone has documented the full depth and breadth of what happened for women and the role women have played um, post the election of Donald Trump. Um, I want to just say to everyone, I'm going to ask some questions, talk a little bit uh, with Jennifer, but then we do want to open it up to the audience. So put your questions in the chat for us, and we'll try to get to um, a number of those. Um, you know, everyone really marked the beginning of this explosion uh, with the Women's March on the day after the Trump inauguration. 
But I know from our time at the center, and you point out so well in your book, that it was almost instantaneous after his election. Um, I'm just going to kind of recount our what happened to us to reflect what you write about in the book. Um, during that infamous morning after election on 2016, among the many things that we were all worried about at the Center for American Women and Politics was what the defeat of Hillary Clinton in the election of Donald Trump was going to do to the efforts to get more women to run for office. For decades, we've been monitoring the number of women candidates and office holders on both sides of the aisle. But in addition, we've been running a nonpartisan campaign training for women in New Jersey called Ready to Run. And we've created partnerships with universities in about 20 states across the country to help them establish their own state-based Ready to Run programs. And in that very immediate moment for us, we had just started advertising for our Ready to Run 2017, just about two weeks before the election. And we really feared that as a result of this election, women would give up on politics completely. I mean, really, who's going to register for a campaign training and learn how to run for office in the wake of this devastating de defeat? We really thought, oh my God, women are going to you know, crawl under the covers and just refuse to come out. But much to our surprise, it was completely the opposite. On that very day after the election, we started getting registrations coming in online for our March 2017 training. And normally by December of the year before Ready to Run, we might have a dozen registrations because you know, people wait until the last minute. Um, but in December of 2016, we had over 100 women registered. Um, our average total number of registrations in any given year is about 150. In February, more than a month ahead of our training, we had to find a bigger venue to accommodate all the women who were signing up. And we finally closed registration at 300, but if we had had more space, we easily could have hit 400. And this isn't just the story of our program in New Jersey, because everyone writes that off, oh, that's New Jersey. It's, you know, in the Northeast, it's kind of blue. Uh, we heard the same thing from our partner programs in places like Western Pennsylvania, Oklahoma, Utah, Illinois, Arkansas. So on November, uh, November, the day after the election, November 9th, we knew something was up, but we really had no idea the magnitude of it. But you chronicle the magnitude of it, and you chronicle this growth of political engagement by women across the country as activists, as candidates, and as office holders. And you write about 2017 and 2018 elections that saw record numbers of women running and winning. And you point out that this was almost exclusively on the Democratic side. But you have a really personal perspective on the rise of Donald Trump and what that meant to Republican women. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your reaction to both the candidacy and the election of Donald Trump and what it's meant for you and your career as a journalist, because you've, you're in a different position now um, in, in the universe, in the media universe. And also reflect a little bit about what it's meant for like-minded Republican women and their political futures. What's in store for them? Well, first of all, thank you to Big Ten for having me. And thank you to Debbie and everyone at the center. For those of you who have um, gotten a chance to read the book or begin to read the book, you'll know how heavily I relied on them for information, not only for data, but for a big picture history and perspective. 
And they were really an invaluable resource um, for me as an author, as a researcher. Um, it was um, kind of a dual experience for me. Let me put it that way. I was both chronicling the passage and the experience of hundreds of thousands, millions of women, but I was also going through a similar process myself. Um, I had um, for virtually my entire adult life um, been a somewhat uh, moderate, um, closer to center than conservative, but with help very comfortably within the Republican Party. And um, I would point to your former governor, Christy Todd Whitman, as kind of the quintessential role model that I sort of took for myself. Fiscally conservative, but pro-choice. Um, and um, it takes a measured, um, I think, humble approach to government um, that change should be incremental, that government should be wary of um, unintended consequences. And that was kind of um, most of my political life. Um, and certainly, um, particularly in the years leading up to Donald Trump, there were always elements within the Republican Party that smacked of populism, nationalism. Um, they have always been a part of the political scene. Um, in the 1960s, of course, they were in the Democratic Party or the Dixiecrat Party. And those same people migrated over to the Republican Party. And so there was always an element that was anti-immigrant, um, that was reactionary on race. Um, but frankly, until Donald Trump, they had always lost, at least at the presidential level. Um, and in national office, by and large, um, except for extremely red states, um, you had all sorts of Republicans uh, who were in the Senate. And you did have a range that went from people like Nancy Kassenbaum to uh, all the way to uh, Kay Bailey Hutchinson, who was much more conservative, but still within the realm of kind of normal politics. Donald Trump really changed that. Um, and um, the inmates began to run the asylum as it were. Um, I, like many, many women, did not imagine that the country would actually elect him. And I held out hope for a very long time that the Republican Party would not allow him to seize their nomination. And of course, I was wrong on both counts. And I think through this process, I began to look at the Republican Party, as did um, many other women and men as well, um, in this informal gaggle that came to be known as the Never Trumpers um, and have kind of continued on, that we began some real soul searching and some real um, reflection on what the Republican Party um, had become. And uh, I wrote a somewhat lighthearted column in the spring of 2016, breaking up with the Republican Party, um, because any party that could frankly uh, attach itself or allow itself to be captured by Donald Trump was not something that I could abide by. And so I think throughout this period, as women were becoming more politically active, as Republican women were stepping away from their past partisan affiliations and making um, good alliances, just like the Big Ted makes alliances on behalf of democracy. I was also personally undergoing this. Um, and um, I could relate in a very strong way to these women um, who suddenly felt like the earth and the moon and the stars had crashed, that they did not expect this from the American electorate. Um, and suddenly they were beginning to question um, the survival of American democracy, 
the um, zeitgeist in the country, the um, judgment of the American people. And so um, I, like them, um, began this um, process of soul searching and reflection. Um, and uh, so in that respect, um, it was both um, revelatory for me watching this, but also a, a chance to uh, kind of uh, reach within myself and uh, tell my own story a bit. Um, even though I am an opinion writer, um, until this whole process, I'd always um, maintain the view that the story is the story and not less of me, more of the story. Um, and I think this forced me to kind of come to terms with the fact that this was a period of time where women collectively were in fact um, revealing themselves, were in fact engaging. And I think the most magnificent um, metamorphosis went on as women who either had been apolitical or had been mildly political suddenly realized that democracy and politics is not what other people do, but what they can do. And it was a very interesting process of women discovering their own power, their own skill set, and realizing that the people who are in political office do not necessarily have superior information, superior skills, or certainly superior judgment. Um, I tell the story of Abigail Spanberger, um, who is now in her second term. She had been a CIA um, undercover um, officer um, and in 2016 had watched the election returns, horrified, and she started begin to mull maybe doing something in politics. And she went out to a town hall for her congressman, um, David Bratt, who was an extremely conservative Republican. Uh, for those of you who recall, he was the one who dislodged Eric um, Cantor, who at the time was the majority leader. It was quite an upset. And as she's sitting listening to him, as he's defending the Muslim ban, as he's you know, going on and on about immigrants, she's thinking to herself, this guy does not know what he's talking about. I could do this. And that recognition that, yes, you can do this was a very common theme that uh, many picked up on. And so many of the people that I interviewed um, who self-organized, who started volunteering, who created these networks, but also people like Abigail who decided to run for office, it was kind of a rediscovery of their own power and the power of citizen activists um, that democracy um, does not uh, defend itself, does not uh, heal and um, protect itself from uh, authoritarianism, from um, views that are contrary to our, um, our ethos as a constitutional republic. Um, and so that was a, a fascinating uh, experience to watch women as they kind of came to terms with this. Yeah, you know, Jennifer, that is it that resonates so much with what we first saw back in the 70s when we saw the beginning of women coming into office, you know, in that moment when the feminist movement met electoral politics and there started to be an emphasis on that. And the path then was women were volunteering with the League of Women Voters and they went to state legislatures to monitor legislation for the league. And they got there and they saw these guys and it was like, they suddenly realized these guys didn't knew no more than they did. In fact, they knew a lot more than those guys knew. And they suddenly had the revelation, well, if they can do it, I can do it. And that's when we started seeing 
women running for the state legislature. Not enough of them, and our numbers never got as big as they are right now, but we, we saw that and it was the same kind of experience. The, and I think what happened was in some ways, people stopped doing that kind of work. They weren't, they weren't monitoring for the league anymore. And so they didn't see, they didn't see the guys sitting at reading their newspaper during the legislative session, right? And, and it, it needed that kind of shot in the arm. Um, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I think that some of the people at the center pointed out to me is, you know, we had a so-called year of the women, the woman in uh, 1992, when you had the first big influx of right. women into Congress. Um, and it's somewhat remarkable that until then, you really didn't have a critical mass of women serving in um, the federal legislature. Um, but that did it. But that was a very different model of candidate than what we saw this time. This time we saw people who had never been in politics before. We saw a number of women who had been in national security roles. And one of the differences is since the 1990s, women had been able to join the military, had been able to move up the chain of command because they were allowed to take combat positions. And suddenly they had a resume that many women in the past didn't have, was very strong on national security. And that has always been the dig um, against uh, women candidates that they really don't understand the military, that they really, um, they're very good on all these touchy-feely issues, but what about national security? And so when you had in 2018, which was the first midterms, um, a whole bevy of women who um, had not been politics, but had a ethos of public service that was deeply, deeply held. Um, and when I talked to um, Congresswomen like Mikey Shirell from uh, New Jersey, um, she talked about you know, the sense that there was a call to service, um, that she had served her country once, and she felt like her country was calling her again. This is the best of public service. This is the best that you can hope from politicians, that they look upon it, not in terms of their own political advancement, but in terms of service. Yeah, um, there's an organization actually that does work to get more, more veterans to run and it's the yes. Center for Second Service, right? That's, it's all right. about that thing of second service. I wanna take us a little bit to some of the challenges um, for women candidates. And I want to look particularly at the 2020 presidential election because you really, I think, did a great job of kind of giving an overview of the dynamics and the contours of that whole election, the primary, the Democratic primary and where women fit into it. Um, that was a year we made history, right? Six women running in the Democratic primary. Never before had we seen more than one woman on a presidential primary debate stage. And you point out, we talk about it a lot, that it really gave voters an opportunity to see a range of women candidates, right? They weren't, it wasn't just a woman. It was women who, within the Democratic Party, right? So we didn't have some ultra conservative women, but we had women who, presented the real range of, of Democrats in the party. Um, uh, and, and you write about the questions of electability and likability that haunted the women candidates. And I think in some ways also haunted the candidates of color um, in, in this race. Um, and I know that we heard this over and over again. I was on a call-in show um, in Ohio, a public radio show in Ohio, um, and a young man called in and 
said, you know, I'm, I'm really very progressive and I'm very liberal and I could just hear what was coming, you know, but, 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 but this year, I think we really need a traditional candidate. And I said to him, so by traditional, do you mean older, white, and male? And he kind of hemmed and hawed, but yes, that's exactly what he meant. And this was what the women candidates confronted, um, both their electability and then their likability, almost from the minute that they declared their candidacies. And I'm wondering if you could talk to us about that conundrum of those two things and how it played out in the campaign for the women who were running. Sure. Um, I think um, what you heard from that young man um, was a refrain that I heard over and over and over again, and from women as well in the Democratic Party. Um, and where did that come from? Why, why was that sense um, so prevalent? Um, and I, I think it was several things. First of all, when someone who has um, come from an underrepresented group um, engages in politics or really any endeavor and fails, the natural inclination of people is to attribute the failure to that quality. Um, and rather than to say, well, Hillary Clinton didn't run a great race, or Hillary Clinton didn't realize it was a change election, or Hillary Clinton had the unfortunate um, interlude with James Comey, um, they basically said, I think this tells us America is not ready for a woman. And that seemed to be the takeaway that they took from that. You combine that with, I think, an absolute panic on the Democratic side that the country could not endure four more years of Donald Trump. And what they took from this is, first of all, a woman is too risky. That's why Hillary lost. And secondly, we have to, have to, have to win this election. This is not one where um, you know, we can try uh, you know, a, a long shot candidate. And as a result, the frame that they came up with and was certainly reiterated in the media again and again was this notion of a safe candidate. Who is safe? And although in my own writing, I tried to um, argue every which way I could think of that there is no one formula, of course, for winning a presidential election, that you can put together a coalition um, with um, African-American women and young women and young men, um, you can have all kinds of combinations that you don't need um, the white male older voter, um, that famous or infamous figure of the guy in the diner somewhere in the uh, middle of the country. And there was this sense though, oh, that's the guy we have to get. And in fact, there are many paths um, to the nomination and to the um, election. And yet this framework, I think, just pervaded um, the race, the coverage of the race. And I think um, it made it very, very difficult for women and particularly women of color, I think you're right about that, um, to present themselves as someone who was electable, that's on the electable side of this, um, because there was such a concern about beating Donald Trump. And so I think um, in addition to all of the other challenges that women face, um, I think um, simply breaking through that image of what a president looks like and sounds like was a tremendous challenge. And 
when I talk to audiences, I, um, I put it this way. Um, if you've been a parent and your kid has had one of those posters that lists all the presidents of the United States, um, if you have a very up-to-date one, at the very end is Barack Obama, um, an African-American man. But if you look row after row, what do you see? White men, white men, white men. And that is the mindset that has people um, when they think presidential, what's presidential, who is presidential, who can take on Donald Trump. And it's very interesting in my conversations with um, now Vice President Kamala Harris, she would do an exercise with her team. Um, she would ask them to close their eyes um, and think of what, do you, what comes to mind when you say the boy next door? And they would kind of conjure up an image that actually sounded a lot like Pete Buttigieg, um, this nice, young, white, you know, college-educated, affable, super polite young man. And she says, now try to come up with a two or three-word phrase that describes me. And how do you do that? This was an Asian-American, African-American, former prosecutor, child of immigrants. Um, it's a very long explanation to get to the essence of such a person. And in politics, people want to grasp something very quickly, very simplistically. Um, and so it was a struggle. Um, and I think um, they probably learned a lot. I think we also saw that although women certainly made inroads, and I would be surprised if either political party has another presidential cycle that doesn't include at least one woman candidate, um, that um, the standards really were quite different. Um, and I remark at some length in the book, you know, we had a couple billionaires who showed up on the stage with no federal experience. One of them, Tom Steyer, had never run for anything, had never held any kind of political office. You had um, Andrew Yang, who kind of just showed up, you know, with a slogan and a button and said, oh, I can be president. I'm going to show up and run. And meanwhile, you have, you know, Elizabeth Warren, you know, schlepping around this, you know, mile high stack of white papers trying to explain every single policy. And when she does, she's criticized for not having an even more specific policy. So the expectations of what a male candidate has to present and what a female candidate has to present were quite different. Um, and um, you know, Jennifer, this really connects to a lot of research about qualifications, right? We know men are assumed to be qualified for these positions and women have to prove it. And at the same time that they're having to prove it, they have to be likable. So if you're if you're Elizabeth Warren and you're showing up with your the your stacks of position papers and kind the the instant reaction then is that she's this lecturing school marm, right? So that makes you not likable, but you have to do that to prove that you're qualified. And you know when you raise Pete Buttigieg. I was always struck by the fact that at the same time that he was running, you know, the young mayor of a small city who was instantly taken seriously and the media loved him. You all in the media ate him up. Um, at the same time, we had the mayor of Compton, California, a young black woman named Asia Brown. Compton is about the same size as South Bend. Asia Brown was exactly the same age as Pete Buttigieg. And I was always talking about, would anybody take her seriously if she had said, I am going to run for president? Would she ever have gotten that traction? And 
somebody in the audience actually asked the question, what role the media has played in kind of perpetuating this narrative about likability and electability and qualifications? Um, because I, I do feel like media helped these guys a lot. Absolutely. I was somewhat horrified, actually. Um, and I felt it, you know, when I was going through it. But then when you go back and you research and you start looking at headline after headline and the same framing that comes over again and again, you realize how completely prevalent it is. And, you know, in other contexts, I've um, criticized my um, media compatriots for a certain pack mentality um, that everyone sort of latches on to a particular story or a storyline or a take. Um, and then everyone kind of, you know, it's like six-year-olds at a soccer game. And suddenly there's the ball and everyone, you know, um, runs to it. Um, and this was certainly the case um, in this election. Um, and it was not only on the um, electability, but it was also on the likability side. You know, Bernie Sanders is not what you would call a likable guy. And in fact, he made a career out of being kind of nasty and irascible. Um, and look how poorly he dressed and look at his hair. Can you imagine a woman behaving that way and getting anywhere near a presidential stage? But somehow for him- Hanging her finger, right? Can you Yes, right. Um, and somehow for him, it was endearing. And when at the beginning of the race, when they trotted out all the stories about Amy Klobuchar being a tough boss and throwing things and yelling at people for being late, I know the horror yelling at people for being late, um, you know, no one thought to interview any of the other candidates or their former staffs. And in fact, it wasn't until the last woman was out of the race that the New York Times ran a story on Bernie being such a difficult personality, such a difficult boss. And, you know, you really do kind of wonder, where is this coming from? And I think the answer is that men and women have really been suffused in certain mindset, a certain perspective, and these become very hard to shake off. Um, you know, when you have the rose-colored glasses, you just assume the world is rose-colored and, you know, this is, the, you know, the Emerald City is green and you don't realize it's because you have a certain pair of glasses on. So I think it's going to take much more introspection, which unfortunately is not something the media does all that well, um, to examine their own coverage and the way that they help perpetuate some of the themes. And quite frankly, that was one of the motives that I had for writing the book was to um, kind of shine a light that this wasn't simply, uh, women don't run into a problem simply because there's an element of American society that is anti-women. Um, that there are structural, psychological, sociological impediments that we have to consciously think about and work on breaking down. And I think the selection of Kamala Harris as vice president, which almost did not happen because, of course, she was an ambitious woman, as if George H.W. Bush, um, who had called Ronald Reagan's economic plan voodoo economics, would ever have been criticized or prevented from getting the vice presidency. But for a woman to have talk sternly to Joe Biden or to try to create a, an issue that she could advance. This was 
tremendously difficult for many in the Biden camp to uh, abide by. And she paid, I think, a great penalty. Um, many people in the campaign tried to um, go a different direction, um, tried to hold this against her. But now you have a reality. You have a individual who, when they go to a foreign country, just in France with Macron, or you have these ceremonial moments, for example, when she appeared at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier on, on election, on uh, inauguration day, that suddenly you have a different image, a visual um, sense of what power can look like and what a powerful person can look like. And throughout that day, I was just struck by how different she looked. Um, and of course she's different. Of course she was a woman, of course she was not white, but you know, remember she's in this just resplendent jewel colored purple um, coat. And suddenly politicians don't look the same anymore. They don't sound the same. They don't have the same voice quality. And I would hope that during the course of her vice presidency that part of America becomes acclimatized, if you will, to seeing women in positions of power. Um, you know, Debbie, that the number of women executives in American history is surprisingly tiny. I was shocked to learn how few women governors we have had in the entire history of the Republic. Yeah. And I think um, it has been much easier for women to break in at the state legislative level or at lower executive positions like a mayor. But we've had practically no governors who are women, um, really down to a handful of those, a few, uh, actually one during this period of time. Um, and that becomes an ongoing, um, I think, a challenge for women and for the press and for the country um, to kind of come to gra grasp um, what it is about um, females in positions of power and positions of authority um, that makes it difficult for some people, including women, by the way, um, to accept. Um, yeah, and you know, I think that- Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. There's something about those legislative positions that in some ways fit with the stereotype we have about women, right? That they work well with others, they can work in committees um, and deliberate. But when you're talking about being the chief executive, when you're talking about being the place where the buck stops, right. people have a hard time. And we have nine women governors right now. That is a record that was set back in 2004. And we've in years like in 2018, when 36 governorships were up and we had record numbers of women running for governor, we didn't move the needle on yeah. governors. And we've yet to elect a black woman uh, to be a state's chief executive. That's never happened. We've had um, three women of color who've been who've been uh, governors of the state, but um, but never a black woman. Uh, and so there is there is a lot of work to be done on that chief executive level. I want to take us because uh, I are uh, I'm cognizant of our time. Uh, I do want to ask a, a little bit about what happened last week, right? In my state of New Jersey and in Virginia, um, there was a very underreported under story uh, that was some good news for Republican women getting elected in New Jersey. In New Jersey, we will have the largest incoming class of new, new Republican women in our state assembly. Seven new women were elected. 
and the majority of the seats that were flipped from blue to red were flipped by these women. So um, something happened there. Uh, something happened all over the place, right? right. Uh, it was a very different story for Democrats in both states. Um, lost, they lost in Virginia, uh, uh, the, but in New Jersey, we, we managed to eke out a win for Phil Murphy, um, uh, but by a much smaller margin than Joe Biden did a year ago. Turnout was definitely down. And there seemed to be a real enthusiasm gap on the part of Democrats. Um, unfortunately, we don't have any exit polling from New Jersey. Right. Uh, nobody paid attention to New Jersey. They just right. thought Phil Murphy was going to slide on through um, and did not expect this kind of a close race. There was there was some exit polling. I'm not such a fan these days of exit polling. Yeah, I threw it up quite a bit. Um, Still, white college-educated women um, were supporting, disproportionately supporting the Democratic candidate. Some of those Republican women who had supported um, Joe Biden um, may have shifted over uh, to Youngkin. But I, I want I want you to talk about what you think this all means um, for the next year and for the 2024 presidential election. And you know, I'm wondering if all of the Democratic activists activists are just tired. They're just worn out. I mean, they worked real hard for four years. They they got Joe Biden elected, and there's just a kind of sense of exhaustion. And and in a way, going back directly to your book, do you need the big bad guy to motivate people? to come out and to have that kind of enthusiasm? Well, you said a number of things that I think are really critical. And first of all, I wanna go back to 2020 because in 2020, Republican women running for a house also did very well and they had some record numbers. So what was going on there? And I think um, this was just straight reporting. This wasn't any kind of thesis that I had is that after 2018, a lot of re Republican women looked around and said, this is atrocious. We are not getting women candidates. Look at the imbalance um, in the House and Senate. And if we start, don't start doing this, um, all the women in Congress are gonna be on the Democratic side and that's not um, a healthy situation. And so the Republican party as an institution was not particularly interested in developing women candidates because of course, Republicans have a big issue about identity politics. And they thought, well, we just want the best person to run. And as a result, um, they weren't all that interested in supporting women. And many of them got shunted off into races um, that were um, not very winnable. And so what did they do? Women had to do it themselves. You had a lot of ex-women, um, Republican women office holders like Kelly Ayotte. Um, and you had some women PACs um, put together by um, Republican women who really kind of found candidates, backed them to the hilt, um, and was very successful in getting them elected. As you know, the more people who run from a, a demographic group, the more people are going to win. You don't win any of the seats, you don't run it. And so by running many more Republican women, they were more successful. And it is interesting that those very seats that many um, of the class of 2018 on the Democratic side 
who had flipped. In other words, they had gone from red to blue in 2018. Some of those went from blue to red in 2020. So these are some of the most contested seats in uh, Congress. And it's gonna be very interesting to see how those wash out in 2022 after these people now have a voting record and um, have um, you know, sort of the, the aura of Donald Trump hanging over them. So what about last week? Um, you know, there are so many explanations for each of these elections, and I tend to agree with your um, jaundiced view of exit polling. First of all, we know how inaccurate it has been. We know all the biases that are involved. And in 2020, when you had both an exit poll and this massive survey poll that was done and the numbers didn't match up, you kind of threw your hands up in the air and said, oh, what the heck, I'm not sure what it means. So discerning exactly what happened um, is always difficult. Listen, there are always a mix of, in these off-off-year elections, um, which these two states have, um, there's always a, a mixture of um, issues. Uh, Terry McAuliffe was um, not the most scintillating ca candidate. He was an older white guy, um, not very distinguishable in many respects from Youngkin or the image Youngkin was trying to present. Um, the uh, message that um, Terry McAuliffe was trying to run on that Democrats are kind of you know, sol problem solvers, get it done kind of people was badly damaged because of course uh, the president's agenda at that point hadn't produced anything beyond the American Rescue Plan. The infrastructure plan had not passed and we had had a string of some uh, rather weak jobs numbers. So um, I think all of those plus some very adept campaigning by Youngkin who was able to really walk this tightrope between um, you know, kind of winking loyalty to um, Donald Trump, but steering clear of him um, when he was campaigning. You know, all of these factors uh, come together. And I think it is also the case, you're exactly right, that the first year or the first midterm after a uh, change of party in the White House is often a bit of a backsliding. Um, there is um, expectations that are perhaps too high in the campaign. Um, there is new energy on the side of the people who didn't win because they're more determined than ever. Um, and so it becomes a very fraught, very difficult political climate for um, the party that just a year ago now won the White House. And we remember um, also won the Senate and the House um, by tiny, tiny margins, but nevertheless did that. And so you know, looking ahead to 2022, um, I, I come to a few conclusions. One is, I think the adage is still correct that the economy makes a huge difference. And if a year from now, the economy is strong, COVID is more or less in the rearview mirror, um, and some of the uh, spending plans that Biden put on the infrastructure seem to have been um, helpful in the recovery. Um, that will be very good news indeed for Democrats. It may not be enough, um, but without that, they really are up uh, the creek without a paddle. Um, so what else can they do or what else are they doing? Um, I think um, unfortunately, you have to go back to the experience of 2016. No one is going to do this for women or for Democrats. 
You got to do it yourself. You have to be able to re-energize. You have to be able to explain what is at stake. And I think there are some ways in which women can get and are being motivated. I think the Texas abortion law was a terrible overreach by Republicans. And even Republicans who consider themselves to be pro-life have been really not pleased with this, somewhat horrified by this, because it has this kind of big brotherish, uh, you know, put an, a, you know, a, a bounty on the, the heads of women, turn in women for a, a reward. That sort of maneuver is exactly what has infuriated women and has exactly that spurred the sense that if they don't do it themselves, look what happens. Um, it's very interesting that when this passed, um, many of us were concerned, oh my gosh, there's gonna be a zillion copycat laws. Not a single state has gone down this road. Um, they have tried other abortion bans, um, but this particular model of trying to empower people to turn in their neighbor or their colleague um, really has not caught on, I think for a very specific reason. Um, I think what the Supreme Court does with abortion will matter a great deal. I think um, women who have simply come to um, live in a world in which this has never been an issue, um, in which they have always um, had confidence that they have personal autonomy, that they can control their lives. Um, if this begins to um, evaporate, I think you will see a tremendous um, backlash. Um, and I think um, it still does matter, um, finally, what candidates you put up there. Um, 2018, these women that we were talking about were tremendous candidates. They were smart, they had national security experience, and they were well suited for the, for the district that they ran in. Um, Abigail Spamberger won in a district that Donald Trump had won in. Um, you know, many of these people ran well above the top of the ticket, which was Hillary Clinton um, in 2016. Um, and in 2018, when you looked at their margins, they were quite astounding. Um, and they had managed to bring in new voters. They had managed to consolidate their gains. Um, so I think candidate quality does make a difference. And my final kind of takeaway on this is that we are undergoing a real political um, realignment in this country. That in addition to race, um, the great dividing line in politics now has become education. That it used to be that college educated white women voted in very significant numbers for Republicans. These were the women's club um, ladies. These were the ladies who were the poll workers. Um, we had Republican women's clubs all over America who were very active in the party. Um, and what happened is I think through the radicalization of the Republican party and the Donald Trump phenomenon, which was um, very much aimed towards men, um, sort of a male resentment and a white male resentment, um, that women really did flee the um, Republican party. And I don't see any sign that they're returning. Um, those margins for um, Biden were very large. They continue to be large. And so what you now have is um, college educated people, um, Again, women as well, but really all college educated people 
gravitating towards the Democratic Party and the Republican Party um, kind of focusing on um, rural, white, primarily male voters. So you have this very stark alignment. Um, and to some degree, it becomes a battle of the turnout. Um, that was a bit of what happened in um, Virginia. Um, but it really is going to be, I think, a test of both parties, but in this case, particularly the Democrats, whether they can kind of go beyond um, this natural base of constituency. Are there ways in which they can at least reduce the margins um, in rural America? Are there ways in which they can recapture um, some of the non-college educated um, you know, uh, vote. Um, you hear Biden, it was just today that he was appearing in Baltimore talking about all the blue collar jobs that he's going to create that don't require a college education. That is aimed at that demographic that used to be comfortably within the Democratic Party um, and now has kind of migrated um, back to the Republican Party. So although it's a scary time, it's a stressful time, it's a crazy time, it is also fascinating. Um, and I am reminded over and over again that America is not a static place, um, that um, it continues to change, to evolve, um, that the parties respond in various ways. Um, and that, you know, who would have thought um, in the middle of Donald Trump's um, first term that he would lose the presidency, lose Arizona and Georgia, that Georgia would elect two Democratic senators, um, and that at the same time, the House would almost flip Republican. That, that's kind of an amazing array yeah. of cross-currents yeah. and factors that, you know, you kind of have to have a little bit of humility as a journalist or a historian or a scientist, as you kind of, you know, look. Um, you know, one of the questions I get a lot is, how could women vote for Donald Trump? Why did so many women, white women? and Women and all voters are complicated people. There are cross currents of education, of class, of geography, of religion. And so when you speak of women voters, you have to be a bit more specific right. about- Women, are, women are far, far, far from monolithic. And yes. party is the major, you know, trigger for most voters, including women, and those women who voted for Donald Trump were Republicans. They were registered Republicans and they voted for the Republican. And even the independent women who voted for him were Republican voters, um, traditionally Republican voters, and that's what got them there. But I'm, I wanna just, there's a question in the mix uh, from the audience about, um, will moderate women uh, fare better than progressive women in 2022 and 2024? I think that speaks a little to your point earlier about um, the can the women candidates who were successful were right for their districts, right? right? So if they're running, you know, I think about an Abigail Spanberger, she was right for her district as a moderate. Um, right. And Ayanna Presley, needs to be a progressive to win when she's running, right? Or an Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, right? Uh, as Nancy Pelosi says, if a bottle of water ran in Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's district <laughs> as a Democrat, that bottle of water would win. But exactly. so, so how will that work out um, right. for that progressive well, moderate it, tension? 
you are exactly right that some of the flashiest personalities that have really mastered the art of social media, and I don't say that in a derogatory way, I said in a complimentary way, like AOC, like um, the squad, they didn't flip seats. They came from very blue districts. They, in some instances, had really remarkable upsets of establishment Democratic men, um, but they didn't change the balance of power. The balance of power um, resides in these districts that, you know, when you go down the, the line in 2020, very tiny margins in some of these. Some of them had a few hundred, some of them had a percentage point. Um, that is a, you know, recipe for a constant political shifting back and forth. And one of the things that I'm going to be very interested to see is if, for example, in a couple of the California districts um, where you had freshman Republican women, um, both Asian Americans um, who uh, won seats, will they be able to hold these seats now that they have had a voting record that really wasn't independent, that was really kind of down the line with Kevin McCarthy and Donald Trump, and they really didn't carve their own way. They didn't act like moderates once they got into office. And I think Democrats, if they are smart, will find candidates who are well-suited for those districts. Um, of course, the districts are changing now because we have redistricting. Um, but as you know, there are many districts in um, that span Orange County, San Bernardino County, and the southern part of uh, California um, that are rather well-balanced. Um, and even the Democrats are uh, relatively um, moderate. So I do think moderate candidates still matter a great deal. And politics is about the margins. Um, you know, um, it's not like um, Democrats are going to win, you know, every white male out there. They just have to win more of them than they did, you know, um, a, an election ago. Um, and I do come back to, I think, something that Stacey Abrams really showed us. And that is, that parties need to spend a whole lot more attention and money on organization and engagement and turnout. I think millions and millions of dollars are wasted on television advertisement. Um, I think they by and large kind of wash over people, particularly in the age of streaming and uh, you know fast forward and all of our crazy viewing habits, that much of that money would be much better spent in finding these occasional voters or the, um, you know, the infrequent voters is how Stacey Abrams calls them, engaging them, um, going out to meet them and doing it not just on the eve of the election, but beginning now, beginning earlier in the cycle so that they feel like the parties are interested in them. They feel like they are um, part of the political process. And when you do that, you can make some connections that would not necessarily be apparent. Stacey Abrams, although she lost in 2018, you know, put together a coalition of many rural women um, who had the same concerns about Medicaid and healthcare as urban African-American women. And so when you actually go out and talk to voters and you 
you know, break down um, the you know, overall geographic or overall demographic barrier, and you kind of get into the weeds of what is it they want? What is it that they're looking for? Then you can, I think, actually go back to an era in which we had some political persuasion um, rather than simply turnout, rather than simply the politics of anger and, um, you know, and rage. Um, And um, I think that both parties would benefit tremendously if there were a Stacey Abrams on both sides of the aisle in every state. Um, and then I think um, we would um, uh, you know, have a, uh, a more consistently high turnout, particularly in off-year elections. And I think you would find that there are maybe some connections um, between rural and urban, between older and younger voters, between working and stay-at-home moms that would not be apparent if you didn't spend the time to cultivate them, to go knocking on doors um, and to turn them out. Um, One of the stories that I loved was a woman who in Alabama who had become part of the Indivisible group. um, And she teamed up with some African-American women in the election of Doug Jones, um, who was the Senate candidate in 2017. And they went out into rural areas of Alabama and people were shocked no one had ever come and knocked on their door and talked to them about politics ever. And I think it's that kind of model that we have to look back to. Um, And so I come back to kind of the message of the big time, which is engagement, citizen action, um, outreach, um, civil debate, um, and a sense of personal responsibility that we own our democracy. And if if we don't, very, very bad things are going to happen. Um, and um, we, we cannot afford to be tired. I think that is the perfect spot for us to end because it brings the whole thing full circle. And I want to thank you for writing this book. Um, I enjoyed it immensely. Um, I hope it was a bit cathartic for you to do the writing of this book. It um, was. Uh, but it gives, you know, in having this conversation, it just reinforces the need for intentionality, yes. um, for focus, for paying attention, um, and for making sure that we are all continuing to do that work uh, to preserve our democracy in all of these ways. And so I'm going to turn it back over to Susan and Big yes. USA, and thank you for uh, all the work that you're doing to keep people's uh, keep people intentional and activated to save our democracy. Well, thank you both um, so much for this uh, opportunity to, to listen to your conversation. It was so enlightening, and we hope you will both come back um, as we get further into the cycle in 2022, um, and we can kind of work off of what where you all are heading. Um, Big Tent is one of those women's groups that came out of the Trump era, and we know our job is not done just because Biden won. We still have much more work to do, and we hope that everyone on this call will continue to join us. We have some terrific spotlight events coming up, so go check our website. Uh, We have Charlie Whelan, founder and co-chair of Unite America, which is a movement of Democrats and Republicans and independents working to bridge the growing partisan divide. And then on January 12th, we are excited to welcome Senator Sheldon Whitehouse to discuss dark money and its effect on democracy. Head to our website. And um, as all best-selling books have, we look forward to Jennifer's sequel in 2024. <laughs> so thank, thank you all for coming. And thank you, Jennifer. Thank you. Bye-bye.